What does it mean to be an evangelical Christian these days? The term evangelical derives from a Greek word meaning gospel or good news. So evangelical refers to a person, a church, or an organization committed to the good news that Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, is the savior of the world. But evangelical Christianity is in crisis with many of the remaining so-called evangelicals no longer holding to some of the most basic tenets of Bible beliefs. While the churches are undergoing a great decline in the West, a new remnant of believers is beginning to pray with great resolve and fervency. Prayer and repentance have always been the price of revival. The question is, are the remaining evangelicals willing to pay the price? The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. 2020 has been a challenging year for all of us. But through it all, we have continued the ministry of Jerusalem Channel. Not just video teachings and our informative news and analysis website, exploits.tv, but also new projects. But as we approach the end of the year, we need your help to keep us going and growing into 2021. Please consider a year-end gift of support through our website, the Jerusalem Channel mobile app, or by mail. And thank you for standing with us as we raise awareness of Jerusalem and the soon coming of King Messiah Jesus. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. What has happened to the evangelical movement? When George W. Bush became president in 2001, evangelical Christians made up about a quarter of the American population. By 2010, evangelicals dropped to about 21% of the population. But as of today, that figure has reportedly declined to about 15%. A survey of evangelicals speculated that if this trend continues, it won't be too long before evangelicals are at 10% of the population and then eventually 5% and so on and so forth. To see what America's evangelical future potentially looks like, all we have to do is look at the Western European nations where Bible-believing Christians now comprise only a small fraction of the populations. True believers should be deeply alarmed that large numbers of evangelicals have abandoned some of the most basic beliefs of the faith. Now, according to a George Barner survey of evangelicals, 48%, that's nearly half of all evangelicals, said that they believe that eternal salvation can be earned by good works. But that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. So nearly half of so-called evangelicals now believe that a person can earn eternal salvation through good works. But that claim goes contrary to New Testament teachings, such as Ephesians 2.8, 
which states that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. According to the survey, 44% of evangelicals claim that the Bible is ambiguous in its teaching about abortion. And 40% said that they do not believe that human life is sacred. To me, that statistic was especially shocking coming from so-called evangelicals. Furthermore, and this is a real shocker, 43% maintained that when Jesus was on earth, he sinned. Now that's a very heretical and dangerous belief because it's theologically important that our Savior lived a life without sin. Here's the significance of the sinlessness of the Savior. Jesus lived a representative life on our behalf. Our Lord's obedience stands in the place of our sin. He is our substitute. He died for us, and His perfect law-keeping is counted as fulfilling the law on behalf of all those who put their trust and faith in Him. In fact, the Bible teaches that the Lord's righteousness is imputed to every believer. But if you erroneously believe that Jesus sinned, then according to you, he could not have possibly been the sinless sacrifice necessary to pay for our sins. Tragically, that's what 43% of so-called evangelicals now believe. Furthermore, in the survey, 36% of people claiming to be evangelicals said they prefer socialism to capitalism, and 34% rejected the idea of legitimate marriage being one man and one woman. Unfortunately, the figures in the Barner survey are said to be consistent with other surveys among believers claiming to be evangelicals. Well, these people may think they are evangelicals, but they are clearly rejecting doctrines that would have made them evangelical in the first place. On top of it all, just as evangelicals are blending in with the world and looking like the world, many prominent evangelical leaders on the national stage this year have continued to fall into sin and moral failure, which brings me to the topic of Bible prophecy. The scriptures foretell a great apostasy in the end times. So I want to draw your attention to a survey by radio host Jan Markell of what she describes as the top 10 Bible prophecy stories of 2020. Number one on her list is the decline of America. Well, Bible prophecy watchers have always speculated that America must decline because there really is no end time power in the Bible other than a revived Roman Empire and its Antichrist system. This year, we've watched capitalism come under attack and socialism and globalism being increasingly extolled. Some so-called progressive political leaders are even promoting Marxism in the United States disguised as socialism. Number two on Jan Markell's list of the top 10 Bible prophecy stories of 2020, and I certainly made much mention of this myself, is the rise of lawlessness, anarchy, and the spirit of Antichrist. 
Recent lawlessness in the streets and cities of America has been breathtaking. We're actually witnessing tribulation events predicted for the near future already beginning to arise and to develop at the end of the church age. Now, I also agree with her assessment of the number three top ten Bible prophecy stories from this year, and that is the peace efforts in the Middle East. Whether you agree with the Abraham Accords or not, peace between Israel and the Gulf states is refreshing for regional harmony and commerce. But as hopeful as the Abraham Accords seem to be, all of us Bible prophecy watchers realize that such agreements are only paving the way for the ultimate peace deal that will be confirmed by the Antichrist with many. So let's not forget that Jeremiah 6.14 prophesies, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And 1 Thessalonians 5.3 foretells, While people are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Number four on the list of 2020 stories, increasing attacks on Christians and churches thanks to COVID-19. Franklin Graham says America is in moral freefall, and he added, the hatred that we see from many in the public square towards Christians is incredible. Under government edict, churches were either shut down or marginalized. Christians in the UK and the USA were harassed and even arrested for practicing their faith and or meeting to worship. Meanwhile, believers in the Middle East and Africa have continued to be slaughtered by the thousands. But didn't Jesus remind us in Matthew 10:22, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Number five on the list of top 10 Bible prophecy stories of 2020, the growing apostasy and wolves among the flock. Sound biblical teaching is fading with a rise in the love for experience, emotion, and unsound doctrine. There is even the love of the doctrine of demons. In fact, Paul prophesied in 1 Timothy 4, 1, now the Spirit clearly says that in the latter days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by demons. At the same time, just when Bible prophecy should be preached, the topic has vanished from most pulpits, as well as support for Israel in the traditional churches. Number six, the pre-tribulation birth pangs. The earth is groaning. The worst of the birth pains Jesus prophesied for the last days will occur in the Great Tribulation period as outlined in the book of Revelation. But already now in the church age, we are witnessing a foreshadowing of the horrors to come. Natural disasters are unprecedented globally. Now, number seven on the list of top 10 Bible prophecy stories of this year the continued and rapid decline of culture. Evil is being called good and good is being called evil. Aberration and abomination are celebrated just as equality. However, Romans chapter 1 and 2 Timothy 3 in the New Testament 
foresaw all of this coming for the last days when debauchery will increase. Number eight, the rise of strong delusion. In many ways, this trend should be number one on my list because in all my born days, I've never seen or heard so much delusion as is being propagated daily by the media, politicians, professors, and preachers. What rational person wants the protection of the police to be abolished? And the Holocaust is being denied as a myth. The Apostle Paul explained in 2 Thessalonians 2 that strong delusion will be sent by God because there is no love for the truth. Strong delusion is how people will be deceived into welcoming the Antichrist. Now, news item number nine on Jan's list, the COVID-19 surveillance state. Overbearing government intrusion and contact tracing abounded in 2020. In some places, people actually had to register to attend church so that they could be traced. Restrictions, lockdowns, quarantines, demands to wear a face mask. All of these kept changing. And clearly, Bible prophecy teachers believe that society is being prepped for the eventual control of government by Antichrist. And fear is a tool being used to cower people. Now, to me, the increase of surveillance reminds me of the social science fiction novel called 1984, which was written by English novelist George Orwell. In 1949, when the story took place in an imagined future, the year 1984, he envisioned the world fallen victim to government surveillance and propaganda. And in the novel, Great Britain became a province of a totalitarian superstate named Oceana, ruled by thought police who persecute individuality and independent thinking. The party leader is called Big Brother. The novel's central character dreams of rebellion and enters into a forbidden relationship with a colleague and starts to remember what life was like before the party came to power. It would do us all an education to reread 1984. It's become a classic literary example of political oppression. In fact, the novel popularized the word Orwellian as an adjective, with many terms entering common usage, such as Big Brother and Doublethink, describing the process of indoctrination. Other terms from the novel 1984 that entered common usage were thought crime, newspeak, and memory hole, used to describe the deliberate alteration or disappearance of inconvenient or embarrassing documents. Memory holes are all too prophetic of big tech shutting down various websites and social media feeds. In the novel, the party's deceptively named Ministry of Truth systematically rewrote all potentially embarrassing historical documents to conform with state propaganda. Two Minutes Hate was a daily public exercise during which people must watch a film depicting the enemies of the state and cry out against them. So many parallels can be drawn to today's real-life instances of totalitarianism, hate crimes, and mass surveillance. 
Well, finally, number 10 on Jan's list of prominent events in 2020, the longing for a savior. Millions are looking for just one superhuman man to restore peace and prosperity, to bring us back to normal. But too many have rejected Jesus. He's the one who will bring peace to this earth when he returns. But instead, mankind wants to cheer for a short season for the Antichrist. Now, ominously, globalist politicians are talking about the Great Reset. Recently, the World Economic Forum said that they're working on implantable chips that can even read our thoughts. The so-called ruling elites seem to care nothing about our individual cherished freedoms nor the Constitution of the United States. As David Rockefeller once commented at a dinner at the UN in 1994, all we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept a new world order. However, God's got his own reset in store and he will bring it to pass. I believe once the church is completed and raptured, God's reset button will be pushed, to use the analogy, and then he will take up with Israel where they finished off nearly 2,000 years ago. Because God is a covenant keeper, he plans to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time. And according to the prophecies in the book of Daniel, Israel still has seven years of history on God's timeline to fulfill. But hold on. While prophetic trends show how close we are to the formation of a one world government, suddenly, finally, the church in the West seems to be waking up with more urgent and desperate corporate praying in the West than I've seen in my lifetime. Although the persecuted church in the East has been praying for decades for the West to wake up. Will God grant us more time to preach the gospel freely? The erosion of freedoms in the West is shaking the church and getting us back on our knees as never before. We're taking seriously the promise of God in 2 Chronicles 7:14 that if God's people who are called by his name will meet the conditions of doing four things, humbling ourselves, praying, seeking his face, and turning from our wicked ways, then God promises he will do three things. He said, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That's why a great prayer movement is underway. In fact, the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that he would rather teach a man to pray rather than 10 men to preach. And missionary author Andrew Murray has also said that the person who mobilizes the church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism in history. Therefore, it's imperative and urgent that we continue to humble ourselves, repent, and pray in this hour, asking God for an extended period of grace. So many believers are already regularly participating in prayer vigils, Zoom prayer gatherings, and telephone prayer calls. At this time of awakening, we can encourage ourselves by studying how God has responded to prayer in previous revivals. And a major concern that I have is that prayer will continue even after we receive some breakthroughs because the level of prayer that produces revival 
also must continue in order to maintain revival, to sustain the move of God. We simply cannot quit. Recently, I was reading about the great revival that took place in Argentina in the middle of the 20th century that resulted from prolonged prayer. One man, Edward Millar, arranged prayer in his church every night, seven nights a week, for an average of eight hours beginning at 7 p.m. Miller was also a teacher at a Bible institute near Buenos Aires. Well, in 1951, the Bible Institute's regular classes were suspended, and for the following 10 weeks, both faculty and students spent their waking hours laboring in intercessory prayer, experiencing deep brokenness with weeping as the Holy Spirit burdened them for Argentina. These intercessors reportedly went without sleep and food in their pursuit of God. I wonder if we've come to that point yet in the West. As evangelist John Hibbert has noted, the modern desire for fruit without labor, blessing without commitment, and revival without prayer has produced a dreadful apathy in churches today and has spawned a sickening spate of false revivals. The idea of praying like they prayed in Argentina is anathema to many believers. So before we ask God for revival, we should understand the price. Prayer and revival are inseparable, and we have to pay the price in prayer. So God will see that we are seriously earnest. On March the 9th, 1954, the relatively unknown evangelist Tommy Hicks arrived in Argentina. The intense intercession and faithful ministry of the prayer warriors had laid the foundation for his ministry. And one of the most powerful revivals since Acts chapter 2 visibly began. But the public preaching wasn't really the beginning. It's vital that we grasp the fact that revival was first of all prepared through months of prayer. The foundation of all revivals is passionate prayer. There are just no shortcuts. Exactly the same foundation of prayer and deep repentance with weeping and waiting on God, all these factors have paved the way for every revival the world has ever known. Don't forget, the Holy Spirit fell upon the core group of 120 believers in Jerusalem in the upper room because they had been waiting and praying together in one accord. An entry from John Wesley's diary described how he was with his brother Charles Wesley and about 60 other believers in intense prayer. And at three in the morning, suddenly the power of God came mightily upon them, and many fell to the ground. The great evangelist George Whitfield was also present at that moment, and he wrote that sometimes whole nights were spent in prayer. As evangelist John Hippard wrote, without that level of prayer 300 years ago, there would have been no nation-changing, world-changing revival in England. And the Welsh Revival of 1904, which swept 100,000 people into the kingdom of God within six months, it's a well-known fact that the Welsh Revival was birthed in prayer. Evan Roberts, the main instrument in the revival, often preferred praying to his meals. And it's interesting that the Welsh Revival broke at a prayer meeting of young people. But again, without preparation and prayer, 
there would have been no revival in Wales and in all the nations that benefited from it. And here's something I find so interesting. While the Welsh revival began with young people, the Hebridean revival in Scotland in 1949 originated with two little old ladies. So whether you're young, middle-aged, or elderly, revival can begin with you. Let's never allow ourselves to be limited. The two Scottish sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith, were in their 80s. Peggy was blind and Christine was crippled with arthritis, but they prayed long into the night, month after month, until God sent revival upon another group of men who met in a barn. The revival became so intense that the presence of the Lord moved beyond the buildings where people prayed and sinners outside were struck down and drawn into the move of God. So we have to come to terms with the fact that both the Bible and revival history teach that God will not send revival without our commitment to prayer. The revival that I was privileged to participate in the 1990s at a school in Arabia was preceded by intense time of our prayers, both in Jerusalem and in the Emirates. Now it's time to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the world has never seen. Do we yearn for our children and grandchildren to see the manifestation of the glory of God? Friends and watchmen on the walls must be sure that the spirit of true prayer always reflects God's own desire. And that's why scripture commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm here to tell you that the greatest revival the world will ever experience is promised when the Holy Spirit is poured out once again in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and from Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will flow to the nations. That will be God's great reset. Although I mentioned at the beginning of the program the alarming decline in traditional biblical beliefs among those claiming to be evangelicals, a great trend often going unreported is that many evangelicals, a remnant, are aligning themselves in this hour with God's holy purposes, and we're praying mightily concerning Israel's restoration at this time. There may be a remnant of us in this prayer movement for revival in Israel and Arabia, but don't forget, in the beginning, a remnant is all God needs. Well, there's so much more to share, so I invite you to check out our website, exploits.tv, which brings you news on current and end-time events relating to the church and Israel. At our website and Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, we offer you a library of videos 24-7. And we also invite you to sign up for our free electronic magazine called Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32, which declares, The people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and we're going to accomplish exploits, meaning will do the works of the Lord in the remaining time before His imminent return. Feel free to share your thoughts with me on social media. And don't forget all the free video resources you can watch on our Jerusalem Channel mobile app for your phones or tablets. Today, I want to leave you with the Bible's best-known evangelical verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Well, until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's pray without ceasing. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.